Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, and so today we're going to jump into uh, the third volume of the Baroque Cycle, um, and we'll cover this over three episodes. This book is called Odalisque. It covers the years 1685 to 1689, so basically the reign of James II and the beginning of the War of the League of Augsburg, which was the war... Um, started by Louis the 14th against the Dutch and against uh, the Dutch's German allies in the Rhine um, all involved with Sophie Charlotte and the French uh, making claims to uh, the plant Nate things like that for um, you know that's out but it was really that Louis the 14th wanted to dominate the Rhine um, and those those Germanic states there um, what to say about this book I, I actually I wonder if when people give up on the Baroque cycle, how many of them do so because of this book? Um, I don't know. I don't want to, I guess it, I will say it's my least favorite of, of them. Uh, this is some of the world, the final volume, which has three books in it. They all sort of flow together into one story, uh, covering, you know, 1714 to 1715 or so. So it's a much more condensed story and, uh, there's there's a lot going on in there, but it kind of ties all of our threads together, uh, really well. Uh, this book, um, like in the first book is all about Daniel Waterhouse and his growing up into becoming a public figure. And then you got, uh, the King of the Vagabonds, which focuses on Jack and Eliza and their relationship. And Eliza's where Eliza kind of, uh, goes off like a comet in her own direction. And Jack sort of remains in orbit, I guess, uh, or a much closer orbit to his, his his heart and and where his his mind is, uh, and they're just they're more focused. I guess Odalisque is such a there's so much going on in Odalisque, and it's only three hundred pages. And when you think of everything that's covered in this book compared to its length, I wonder if if Stevenson wanted more time to deal with this period of history and the characters, but didn't because he had to get to the confusion, which, uh, you know, also does a lot, but it does it, I think, with, with more compelling stories. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in Odalisque. There's the great stuff on cryptography. This is where if you read Cryptonomicon and you liked it, you're going to like a lot of Odalisque because it plays with uh, ciphering and cryptography. And we see different ciphers in use, uh, including one using a cross stitch it's, it's pretty amazing stuff um that's great uh some of the, the the summation of the leibniz newton philosophical debate is really concise here and well done um so there is good stuff in this this book the versailles court stuff is pretty entertaining too um but as i said there's a lot going on and in a book where there's a lot going on stevens has spent a lot of time talking about like the versailles court or uh Eliza's wanderings in the in the Rhine it's and you think wow like I wish I would have had more on this but instead we're getting you know, like all the descriptions of you know the Versailles court it makes sense because that's how the ciphers have to work but it's it does drag at times amazingly for such a, a focused book uh, let's just talk let's just list some of the things I'm probably going to miss some things uh, but some of the things going on let's take it character by character Jack's out of the picture but we get Bob Shafto and Bob Shafto's uh, introduction to Eliza and his recruiting Eliza into an effort to save his lover from the Earl of Upnor, who bought her as a slave during the purges of 
of uh, of like Duke of Monmouth supporters in in Ireland. Uh, the bloody assizes and all that. Uh, as for Daniel, you have Daniel becoming an aide to James II, but you never really meet James II until the end of the book. Uh, as a dissenter, when you got the king, who's a, himself a sort of a dissenter to the religion of the of the institutional religion of England, you have him. You have him becoming a revolutionary and beginning to use the word revolution in a political sense. You have his punishment at the hands of Jeffries, who's trying to uh, suppress these dissenting figures, but is not able to fully because of Daniel's place in the court. You have him getting a bladder stone, uh, which was all set up in earlier books with Wilkins and, and Peeps having their bladder stone. Daniel having his bladder stone getting cut for, the, for it. You have Daniel... Uh, talking about things that happened between the two books, between Quicksilver and Odalisque in his relationship with Isaac Newton. You have uh, the codification of the Leibniz-Newton debate. You have Daniel being put in the Tower of London for a while and being rescued by Bob Shafto. <coughs> and that's just Daniel. Uh, then you have Eliza's stuff, and you have Eliza uh, in the court of Versailles working as a spy for both DeVoe and... Well, her job is basically to report on what's going on in Versailles for DeVoe, who's in the Netherlands. And then you have her you have her being a governess for different uh, brats in, in Versailles. You have a relationship with Sophie and Sophie Charlotte and all that. You have her uh, spying for William of Orange then, which involves her often going to uh, the Netherlands or, or the Rhine. You have her whole adventure in the Rhine during the war, of, beginning of the War of the League of Augsburg, which led, leads her to meet Etienne Duncachon and get pregnant. You have her, basically, that's the only reason she's alive at the end of this book. You know, she comes into this book as such a powerful and commanding and brilliant figure, someone you think can really dominate the narrative. But by the end, she's basically found out as a spy for William of Orange and, uh, likely to be executed if she hadn't just by chance got pregnant by Etienne Duconchon, the, the son of, of, of a major figure in the French court. Um, you have her becoming a natural philosopher of sorts, hanging out with Huygens in, in uh, the Netherlands. Um, what else? You have the Glorious Revolution. To go back to like the story of Daniel, the whole glorious revolution and the fall of, of James I, which we get kind of an eyewitness account of through Daniel's eyes. Um, oh, yeah, a whole lot. You got more of Eliza's financial and business doings where she kind of, again, messes up with VOC stock. She did it before shortening it to get the, the lead cheap, which could be sold in a war. All that. But then you have, again, um, again another attempt to to mess with VOC stock for the benefit of her Versailles investors and her friends in Versailles who would profit from it. It's a way of her kind of moving up. You have her being ennobled by the court as a kind of as a as a consequence for her good work in terms of of spreading rumors and things to to sabotage VOC stock. Um, you have the background story of whatever happened with that rebellion of the Duke of Monmouth. That's through kind of Bob Shafto's eyes. I mean, I'm just listing the things that are in this book. And again, it's only 300 pages. It's, it's not even the longest of the books. And it's all crammed in. And if you like that kind of thing, 
I think Odalisk is is great. If not, it's going to get you. If you get through it, you get to some really great stuff. You get to Bonanza and in Junta, which are both really great books. Um, so the confusion. The next volume is two books that are intertwined, where he because of the timeline he doesn't publish them as separate books. He just flips back and forth between the two books in order to you know when everything's lining up temporarily, which is actually a problem in Quicksilver where. You know, you really have to pay attention to the dates because different books, they sort of overlap in time, especially King of the Vagabonds and Odalisk will have some overlap. It's just so packed. And and I think that's the trouble with this book, to be honest. Um, so, so it is sort of my least favorite of all eight of the books of the Baroque cycle. That doesn't mean it does, it's not good. I think there's still a lot of great stuff in it. Um, but that's that's my overall feelings. Now, the title Odalisk, of course, refers to like a harem a concubine of sorts. Um, and that's kind of referring to Eliza, who, of course, was an Odalisk, but has become one, has been sort of tamed by Versailles early on and by DeVoe and William of Orange. She's stuck between these powerful forces and has to play the game as best uh, she can. The epigraph for the book comes from Leviathan, no surprise. Uh, quote, in all times, kings and persons of sovereign authority, because of their independency, are in continued jealousies and in the state and posture of gladiators, having their weapons pointing and their eyes fixed on one another. That is, their forts, garrisons, and guns upon the frontier of their kingdoms and continual spies upon their neighbors, which is a posture of war. It's, of course, referring to the Louis XIV and the William, William of Orange. And Eliza, of course, is, is the spy um, for different. She's a double agent, right? by this point uh yeah this is a tough one but you have to get through it because it it does it does set up a lot for for future volumes which the next book thankfully just picks up right where this one lets off we, we start with jack and what he's going on with him and then we pick up right with eliza uh after having given birth to this bastard uh uh this bastard Duncashan. um I'll get the pronunciation right one of these days. Um, which kind of saves her life, right? Keeps her, allow, allowing her to function in Versailles. She does a lot of cool stuff. And I, I think actually the next book we see Eliza do her cool, some of her coolest things. All right, this book. Uh, it starts February 1685 in Whitehall Palace, which is actually a flashback to the death of Charles II, which we've heard about for about 100 pages now so we know it's, know it's happened but you know news travels slow different people find out at different times remember early on there was actually a argument about what that meant for diplomats just as the rumors were coming in but here we actually see daniel basically witnessing or very close to witnessing the death of charles ii and 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 how he kind of enters into essentially the court of James II. Um, he's also the and now the president um, of the of the Royal Society. Uh, his friend Roger Comstock is the secretary of the Royal Society and the major sponsor of it. Um, a bunch of stuff has happened since we last met Daniel Waterhouse. Um, he doesn't show up at all in King of the Vagabonds. Uh, oh, that's another thing. It's another thing in this book is the whole relationship between Daniel and Eliza. That's uh, I didn't even I forgot all about that. That's there too. And so much crammed into this little book. Anyways, a lot has happened though since seventy three. We have uh, kind of Daniel 
becoming president of the Royal Society, we have a real break between Daniel and Isaac. I mean, Isaac was never much of a good friend to Daniel, but we really have them breaking up. It turns out, like, Daniel burned some of his alchemical papers in kind of a fit of rage, and they, they stopped living together and, and went their separate ways. So you have that. You have basically the fall of Louis Anglesey. Um, sorry, Thomas More Anglesey. You have his fall. Uh, he dies in 1679. And, I mean, Louis Anglesey is still around the world up north, and he's going to do horrible things, uh, as we'll see in this book. So you have that. You also have the, I guess, the fall of John Comstock, and which kind of allows his... Um, now, he's not related directly to Roger Comstock. Um, that does open up the Royal Society because before the Royal Society was being bounced between these two it becomes, it kind of is uh, it allows a new age for the Royal Society um, a few other things too, I, I don't remember them all but uh, that's all, or that's happened in the in the interregnum between the, the Quicksilver and Odalisque so we're with Daniel and the king is sick and it doesn't seem like it was a very serious illness, but the doctors come in and begin to, you know, do their bloodletting and their different weird quack medicines. Of course, that's the state of medicine at this time. We get a really close description of this from Louis XIV's mind. So medical knowledge is, is kind of a thematic, at least in the early part of this book. Um, and basically Daniel says something straight up like, you know, the king would have survived enough for the doctors, right? As soon as the doctors came in, the king was, was doomed because of all the, all the weird bloodletting and, and things like that. Um, but you know, Daniel's in a good place because Wilkins sort of, for a while you had like freedom of conscience with, uh, the, what was it? The declaration of indulgence or whatever that Daniel witnessed but this kind of got rolled back right as institutional religion became more dominant right and this i think may have been part of this may have been the realization that james ii a catholic was going to become the king when charles ii didn't have any legitimate children his reign is sort of summed up like this by Stephen uh, Neil Stevenson. It has been, in other words, a reign, Charles II's reign. He was the king. He loved France and hated Puritans and was always long on mistresses and short on money. And nothing ever really changed. Uh, while this long, prolonged death of this prolonged death of Charles II is talked about, and we get a lot of gruesome details about the bloodletting and things. If you like that stuff, it's it's in here. But Roger Comstock, who's now the Marquis of Ravenscar, he's been you know uplifted a little bit he's talking to daniel and of course they're both high up in the royal society so not only are they talking about uh the death of the king and of course roger immediately starts pretending he's catholic uh to be you know because james ii is going to be the new king um but also the question of leibniz comes up very early on um because this is the book in which, that's another thing this book does. It's the publication of the Principia Mathematica, at least the first couple of volumes of it. Which, of course, is not only do we get the clear layout of the system of the world as described by by Isaac Newton, we get, uh, you know, the growing conflict between Leibniz and Newton on philosophical grounds. Which is much more interesting to me than the calculus dispute, to be honest. Because that's just about, like, who invented it first. And they both invented it independently. It's the... It's how they see the system of the world working very f in fundamentally very, very different ways. Um, 
Daniel in this conversation actually goes back to Leibniz's early conversation about perception. Remember when he first meets Daniel, he talks about seeing London through various perspectives. And the question is, what makes a great man? What makes Isaac Newton great or Leibniz great? And maybe Charles II not great. I mean, this is kind of a subversive conversation. And Leibniz kind of talked about perspective, how we all see parts of the world, right? And a lot, lot of those perceptions are, are, are replaceable. Right. Like Jack's isn't right. Jack's as a vagabond is special. So Jack is essentially on the level of an Isaac Newton or a Leibniz. I think in Stevenson's mind, he sees the world and he can do things. But because of his class and his background, he's limited in how high he can rise, at least without outside help and without cleverness. But Jack's kind of arc is much more impressive than Newton's or Leibniz's in many ways. But because of his class and his connections, he's it's a different route to there. But he's a great person. Eliza is Daniel Waterhouse in his old way, even though he's more of a conduit of knowledge. He's not a creator of too much. He's uh, someone who's popular. He's more of a popularizer, I think. Um, but everyone has their perceptions. Now, if you add it all together, you get like a limit towards omniscience. Um which is the mind of God, not quite get there, right? Never can quite get there, but you limit towards it. Um, but some people have that in that unreplaceable perspective, right? They see the world in fundamentally different ways. So a hook and, and Daniel gets into this later in the book where he talks about hook. One of my favorite passages actually in the whole Baroque cycle is where he's talking to hook about the same thing about perception and knowledge and hooks like, well, I'm not a Newton in Daniel says, like, you're actually more impressive than a Newton. Because Newton, I'll, I'll get to this in a couple episodes, maybe next episode it comes up. Um, yeah, I think it's in the next episode we'll talk about this. This is when he's in the Tower of London, uh, being put up there as a dissenter of sorts. But um, anyways, that, that comes up again. And Roger's kind of bored by this conversation. He's got more important things to worry about. But... That shows up in this this talk. And really what Roger's interested in is the health of the Royal Society. And he wants to see this Leibniz-Newton dispute. He wants to know what Leibniz is up to and all that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important opening passage that kind of reorients us to, to London and London politics and the issues going on in the, in the, in the Royal Society and in the English court. And it's all done in this kind of death watch over Charles II. What else is here? Um, oh, some stuff about James II's kid. Like there's dispute about his, because this comes up when James II's taking the throne is whether his ch children are legitimate, you know, him having syphilis. And there was the rumor, which I looked up, they were, this really was in history, this rumor that his kids were just some random bastard that they smuggled in that, his, his wife, I guess his second wife didn't actually have this kid, you know, and that's going to be, of course, the Jacobite line is going to come from the, the, the kids of James II, the ones who are going to claim the, 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 the throne of Scotland or, or all of Britain um, in later years. But OK, I guess that's enough on this opening chapter, which is quite long, covers about 25 pages, but it's. It's again, 10% of the book is just this opening passage. And still all the things I talked about are crammed into uh, Odalisque. I was actually 
didn't remember it being so jam-packed. I just remembered a lot of, when I first read this, from the time I first read this, I remembered a lot about the letters. There's a lot of epistolatory sections where we read Eliza's letters to DeVoe and William of Orange, well, they're to William of Orange via DeVoe, and to Leibniz. But there's a lot more in here, actually. All right. The king dies. James II is, 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 is king for at least a few years. So then we pick up uh, a few months later, the summer of 1685. Eliza, who still in the spring of 1685, was, was captured by William of Orange and basically forced to be his agent uh, in Versailles. And we see her in Versailles. Our epigraph is from Daniel Defoe, not a plan of the English commerce, but from Mull Flanders, which of course is a is a novel, a great novel about um, about prost, you know, a prostitute in in London. And it's kind of setting up Eliza's predicament. Quote, for the market is against our sex just now. And if a young woman has beauty, birth, breeding, wit, sense, manners, modesty, and all to an extreme, yet if she has not money, she's nobody. She has as good want of them. Nothing but money now recommends a woman. The men play the game all on their own hands. So that's what Eliza has. Eliza has money. She has financial know-how. She has connections in Amsterdam. And she can make the courtiers of Versailles rich. Now, back to your History 101 course. Louis XIV, to disempower the nobility, brought them to Versailles, required them to stay much of the year in Versailles, where he created a vibrant consumer culture, a lot of parties, uh, a lot of etiquette. Basically, he's, he was forcing the nobility to spend their time and their money in Versailles. What the, so he indebted the nobility over many years. This is similar to what the Tokugawa did around the same time, actually, in in Japan, by they required people to spend half of their time in Edo, and it created this really vibrant consumer culture in Edo, like you had in Versailles. But it really weakened the nobility because the nobility couldn't be back at home uh, plotting the overthrow of the king or something, right? And of course, there was a big rebellion against Louis the Fourteenth early in his reign by the nobility. Um, so he was working on them. And this is all under that larger rubric of absolutism. You also have his wars with the Huguenots, which is all about centralizing power. Um, so we see violence against the Huguenots, already hinted at in The King of the Vagabonds, but taken to more extremes here. And we see his wars become a way of sapping the strength of the nobility as well. So Versailles is very important uh, for that. So this is the center of court life in France. And we and so Eliza has these, she's able to basically be a financial broker for a lot of these um, aristocrats. But again, power wins out. I think that's the theme of this book, maybe, is money is power, but power is still power, right? And and Eliza's, like, basically, she, she gets out of this book by the skin of her teeth, it seems to me. If she hadn't been just accidentally knocked up by Etienne Dankashan, she probably would have been executed. Um, you know, we'll see why in the, the third, the th in two episodes from now. Anyways, our first letter is dated July. So we most of what we get from Eliza is through letters, not all. But the vast majority of Eliza's story is told to us through letters. So we get it. It's very fragmentary. There's a lot of like missing parts and a lot of stuff we just assume is happening, like traveling to Amsterdam and doing business. But her job in 
in Versailles basically to be a governess for these rich brats. Um, and specifically, she's like the female companion of Sophie Charlotte, who's the sister-in-law of the king at this point. And this leads to the War of the League of Augsburg. Sorry, I think I mean Elizabeth. Elizabeth Charlotte. I said Sophia a couple times. Sorry if I make these mistakes. But uh, Elizabeth Charlotte, Elizoletta, right? Uh, this is what Wikipedia says about it. Louis XIV had pretensions in the Palatinate in the name of his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Charlotte, and threatened further annexations of the Rhineland. Um, that becomes the, 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 the casus belli of, of the war, among other ambitions that Louis XIV had in the Rhineland. All right. That's enough background. So, but these letters kind of, kind of boring, I guess. Um, they do allow us to introduce to new characters. I guess the most important character is the villain Duchex, uh, a Jesuit surgeon uh, and doctor and philosopher and alchemist, and he's into all kinds of weird, weird shit. He is uh, introduced through these letters. Uh, the important thing to keep in mind about these letters is that the. They're not just for DeVoe, they're primarily for the William of Orange. So what she includes is for him. Now, Louis XIV knows this, right? He knows Eliza is working for DeVoe, and he knows that the Dutch will read the letters. And he knows that they'll probably break the cipher. The, the cipher changes a couple times. and But, you know, he sort of accepts that and knows that some information is going to be leaked out. And eventually he wants to actually use Eliza. He hints that he, maybe Eliza could say certain things or not say certain things uh, to the outside world. But, you know, there's there's a subtlety here in these letters that you got, got to pay attention to. Or just, maybe you can ignore it. I don't know. It's All you need to know is that this is intelligence for primarily William of Orange. In the prelude to this this nine years war, the war of the League of Augsburg. To give you one example of it, though, um, in this first letter to DeVoe, she has a postscript where she says, Monsieur le Comte de Belzer finances are in cosmic disarray. He spent 14% of his income last year on wigs and 37% of his interest mostly on gambling debts. Is it typical? I will try to help him. Is this what you wanted me to do? Or do you want me to him to remain helpless? That is easier. So this is, of course, useful for DeVoe because there's all of the internal politics between the nobility. But, it, you know, knowing something about what the aristocracy is doing in Versailles is useful to William of Orange as well. Then we get a letter um, to Leibniz. So the thing about the Leibniz letters is they're incredibly long. Now, thankfully, Neil Stevenson abridges them for us in the text because he, she's using this I Ching binary cipher, which isn't the cipher that Eliza is using in her letters to DeVoe. I don't think we get the details on that cipher. It's not that important. It's, it's a more mundane one, I guess. The cipher uh, that she used with Leibniz works like this. You start with a, a, a sentence which connects to a, one of the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching. Right? I think I said last episode or a couple episodes ago that there's eight bars. It's actually six. Sorry. But each hexagram of the I Ching has six binary digits, right? So there's 64, right? Two to the sixth uh, of these hexagrams. And that then becomes the, the number which, which you add or subtract. So in this first letter we get, it's, uh, it's connected to hexagram three, which 
means you subtract three or add three or something like that to each hexagram in the text. So then you write this letter, you write this long obnoxious letter, right? And she would put in very subtly zo zeros and ones in the, like the cursive writing. So in your C, you might have a little tail or a little loop, something to signify a zero or a one. Then you can extract the binary digits from each six letters uh, and then apply the hexagram and then translate that to a letter of the alphabet. So that's how it works. It's not unbreakable, as we'll see. Um, Rosignol breaks it, breaks all of her ciphers amazingly. But, you know, these letters are personal letters, but she encrypts them. So they're like long letters where she would talk about like the clothing and the hair and the bathroom habits of so-and-so or who's banging who. You know, a lot on the clothing, but it's all just fluff. Because really what she's doing is she just needs a letter six times as long as the one she actually wants to write in order to get um, her true message. So the way Stevenson does this is he italicized the actual text, right, that is ciphered, the ciphered uh, text. Um, and so she, she's sharing certain information with Leibniz, but this is more of a friendly relationship. They have interest in natural philosophy. She's not really spying for them, but there are details about Lizoletta and Sophie and things like that that Leibniz would be interested in because he's working in the, in the court of Hanover. Now, like one thing she'll cipher that she doesn't talk about is this. The king said to be a great huntsman, but he was riding in an extremely stiff posture. I suspect he's suffering from hemorrhoids or possibly a bad back. What he was actually suffering from is, was uh, anal fistulas, which it's a pretty nasty thing. I, it's not uncommon because uh, child brides get this when they're pregnant uh, as teenagers. But, um, I saw a documentary about child brides in, in like Bangladesh and often women who have kids in their, you know, their teens will get these things um they're nasty uh but louis the 14th had them for whatever reason um and, he, and we get a lot on his medical trouble here it's pretty gr pretty gross stuff but he had these surgeries on these anal fistulas you can look this, this stuff up just look up like louis the 14th health troubles or something and you can you can get details on all this so this is all drawn from from real life um but yeah just skipping ahead here there's so much in these letters yeah, so there's a scene where, like, rumors about Eliza have been floating around. And actually, she scolds DeVoe at one point for spreading rumors about her. But it actually serves the king because if she has a reputation as a bit of a, a slut um, in the court, the king go, goes to her. I'm not quite sure when Eliza finally does lose her virginity. It's sometime in Versailles, I think. Um, but... The king goes into her, and everything's public in Versailles, right? The king wakes up, there's a morning ritual where different nobility are, are invited to witness the king waking up and the whole morning ritual and things like that. So nothing happens in Versailles that's not spread around, right? This is a way for Louis XIV to keep control, keep flows of information intact, collect information in some cases, and keep the nobility busy with, with gossip, gambling, parties, minutia, who's banging who, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's all about power, but it also means there's no privacy in Versailles. So he goes in basically to the to where Eliza is, 
and says, I need you to basically pretend you're having sex with me. I, I've heard you're a very loud lover. Please do that with me. He doesn't actually have sex with her. He just feigns passion and screams of passion and, and while he's having surgery on his anal fistulas. Um, so how Neil Stevens have thought this up, he, it's, but it's, it's wonderful. It's also our introduction to Dejax, our real way we actually see him sort of on stage. He's the one doing the surgery. And Eliza talks about this. This is in a letter to DeVoe. Now, why does she include all these details? Well, at the end of the surgery, he says, like, if you, like, your being quiet about this would please me greatly. And she says, well, what about DeVoe? And he says, tell DeVoe everything. Um, and so she does. Now, why is this? Well, William of Orange tells her later on um, that it's because he might want me to know. He might want DeVoe to know. He might want someone who's reading the letters along the way. He might want someone in the cryptographer's office to know. Because the letters would be read when they're leave Versailles and deciphered. Then they'd be picked up by the Dutch and read by them. And then it would be, of course, a copy would get to William of Orange or other people in the Dutch court before finally getting to vote. Everyone's reading this stuff, right? It's all open. So William of Orange explains to her that it could be anyone that he wants to know this. So it's not necessarily DeVoe. It might even be, you know, you that he wants to, you know, be the privy to certain information. All right. Um, we get a letter to Leibniz, September 1685, which is all about the king's health, this, where they pulled out all his teeth and there's a wound in his mouth that couldn't heal and they had to cauterize it. Really brutal stuff. Maybe skip that if you have a weak stomach. Um, but she also talks about, for instance, the, the suppression of the Huguenots in like Savoy. So it's a place that the French also want to kind of control and Louis XIV wants to control it, but there's a lot of like French Protestants there. It's close to Switzerland, a lot of Calvinists. And so he starts repressing them and sending them off to be galley slaves or whatever. So that news gets out and she's actually telling Leibniz, maybe you can warn them or get news out to them that, you know, that maybe you can save the lives of some of these Protestants. Now, if you've been reading these letters, you're probably, it's, you're happy when the story moves to London again, actually, because um, these letters do get a bit tedious, even though there's important information in them. Um, we're set, it's right after the king's death, spring of 18, 1685. So it's actually before all this stuff in Versailles is taking place. And uh, it's basically Roger and Daniel in a coffee house again. It's a lot of Daniel scenes take place in coffee houses. It's, I think it's kind of an inside joke because he started out not drinking coffee or drinking beer in the beginning of Quicksilver. He's kind of a teetotaler on these things. But by the end of this book, this volume, he's addicted to coffee. He even does a thing that maybe you guys have done where you finish your coffee cup, but you keep sipping the cup out of habit and there's no coffee there. Um, and he kind of becomes not a drunk, but he becomes pretty fond of, of, of beer. Um, but that's a lot of the scenes. And they sit down and they are talking about there. So it's Roger and Daniel in a coffee house. And they're basically talking about Daniel's break with Newton, about Halley and uh, this uh, guy, uh, John Flamsteed, who's living in the tower and doing astronomical observations the Leibniz stuff there's a lot of natural philosophy talk in this conversation 
tie it a little bit to politics, but mostly it's about this break. And uh, he doesn't give the full history. I think we get it in a later book where we get the full history of what uh, Daniel did to have this kind of personal break with Newton. Again, their relationship was never that strong to begin with, but Newton does sort of cut Daniel off. Um, and it has to do with his kind of growing interest in the occult, right? And he kind of surrounds himself with these more of occult people, these this alchemy stuff, right? And, you know, of course, from Daniel and Roger's point of view, Newton's sort of kind of wasting his time with this occult stuff and not really publishing what he, what he should. Um, but he's working on it. We know Principia Mathematica is being worked on um, here. And what is the change here that let him do this? Well, it's Halley, right? So Halley comes, you know, Halley's in London and you got Halley's Comet. He has his studies on comets. And this gives Newton additional like data and information that he can use to help create a system of the world, right? That the same gravitational forces that explain the motion of the planets explain the motion of the comets. So it's a universal gravitation. But Roger's asking Daniel, like, what has Newton been up to? And he says, sources tell me he's calculating the precise date and hour of the apocalypse based on occult shreds of data from the Bible. Um, which is what he's spending a lot of his time on. Now, Newton has a lot of time because he doesn't eat. He doesn't have sex. He doesn't really play politics, at least in this part of his life. He's just doing his natural philosophy. So he has time to do Principia Mathematica and find out when the apocalypse is. But really, the impression... the you know, the, the way I think Stevenson describes Newton is, is kind of like a bit of a weirdo and a, just not a non-pleasant person compared to Leibniz, who is very open and willing to talk with people and sharing information, sharing ideas. And, of course, right, ultimately, right? He's more right than Newton was, as brilliant as Newton was, right? He's, he's got this weird occult stuff in infecting his system of the world. So later on, he's traveling. Daniel's traveling to Ipswich, and he's talking to some Puritans. Uh, this guy, um, Exaltation Gather. These great Puritan names, um, like Waterhouse's family, but others. You got Exaltation Gather. But he, but he's talking to Exaltation Gather, and you know this. I, you know this, this comes up throughout the book. Like, when are you going to Massachusetts? When should I'm going to go? As soon as I can work out my finances. A lot of these Puritans want to get out of out of England, right? But you know, Daniel is, at this point in the story, in pretty good shape with James II, right? I, I think it's because they're both sort of dissenters uh, from the established religion of, of the state. Now, this has its limits when the Catholics really start to... Or so really Jeffries begins his more oppressive acts against uh, various dissenting forces like... Uh, the bloody assizes and putting Daniel in the tower and all that, but it's he doesn't quite see that right yet. He doesn't see where it's going to end up. And this is even before Monmouth's rebellion, so there's still hope that Monmouth will come in to to uh, restore a proper Anglican to the throne. Of course, Monmouth fails and he's executed by by Jeffries. All right, now. We also learned that, uh, yeah, Leibniz published, or at least news of Leibniz's publication, which was hinted at way back in uh, King of the Vagabonds, when Jack throws the thing into the into the to the post office. 
um, that the calculus has been published by Leibniz, which uh, and all that Newton's published was that Tangent's paper only because Newton like stole it or, or Daniel stole it, right? So that's kind of he knows Daniel knows that this is going to be problematic, right? But he also thinks it's good financial philosophy. So. So next we see Daniel on his way to Trinity and he's actually going to see uh, Isaac Newton and we get the, a long section on natural philosophy. Um, so all volcanic sections, in fact, Daniel's trip to Trinity is described as art, you know, curves along hyperbolas uh, and things like that. So if you, you know, maybe you get a nice little review of your conic sections and their relationship to the, the motion of planets right ellipses parabolas hype you know hyperbolas circles all those different conic sections and how they tie to the calculus go back to your college calculus course high school calculus course whatever to review that but it's all to trying to basically it's neil stevenson essentially laying out newton's principia mathematica's the major findings of it right which is like universal gravitation and the and the laws of forces and things like that you know, and how it ties to comets, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a lot of science talk in this section of the book. Now, before we meet Isaac Newton again, who again is just kind of floating through this book like a like a like a comet, just appearing like here and there. I guess until the last book, he's a more dominant figure in the final volume. But uh, we. We get this nice little epigraph from Gemelli Cariri, which is so, I think, meaningful for what this section's about. I love his choice of little quotes from historical texts. I cannot choose but condemn those persons who suffering themselves too much to be dazzled by the luster of the noble actions of the ancients make it their study to exalt them to the skies without reflecting that these later ages have furnished us with others more heroic and wonderful. Which is basically saying, stop believing in the ancestors, the old classics, modern science is better. And then we jump to this conversation with Newton. And New why is Newton, what, this is about why is Newton obsessed with this occult stuff? These old ancient books, this alchemy crap, why is he into it? And it has to do with progress or decline. Now, Daniel Waterhouse is someone who was raised to believe the world's getting worse right ultimately to an apocalypse right the good old days were in the bible you know the times of enoch you know before noah that was the golden age of humanity and we've been sort of in decline ever since um that that's kind of that christian worldview the kind of entropy is is in there everything sort of rots and gets worse individually things get worse now of course there's the heavenly kingdom at the end or whatever but Earth sort of just degrades until it finally is over. That's what Newton believes. Now, Daniel no longer seems to believe this. Daniel seems to think things maybe are getting better because of science, right? Which is kind of Leibniz's perspective too, it seems. Um, and Isaac's like, well, I'm trying to figure out what Solomon knew. And Daniel explains, dude, you know more than Solomon. I know more than Solomon. Probably half the people in London know more than Solomon did, right? You pick up a, you know, any book, you know probably more than Solomon does. And then Isaac just doesn't believe that. He says, no, it's like they knew all these secrets of the universe. 
they had these secrets and my god job is to unlock it. it even says like the temples in ancient israel he had keys to the universal system he's trying to lay out um so there's a wonderful conversation where he says like everything rots he says there's no perpetual motion machine that's what newton says and daniel says except for the heart and then newton says the heart rots daniel sometimes it even begins to rot while the owner still lives which i guess is true um but but this is that secret is that philosophical mercury right that that thing that can unlock the system of the world right and newton thinks he's got part of it at least in his principia mathematica but there's something that still unifies everything together and then he basically starts showing him the drafts of the principia mathematica right and daniel kind of is able to follow it he, uh, but really the philosophical heart of this besides that the universe is getting worse over time is that god is there constantly he's there in everything that happens in the universe so the system works but it's constantly working because god is intervening right um here's he says you have proof right this is daniel you have proof right that saying that if gravity follows an inverse square law satellites move on conic sections and isaac says and flamstad says they do they do therefore gravity does indeed follow inverse square law but we may only say so because it's consistent with Flamsteads' observations. If tonight Flamsted notices a comet moving in a spiral, it shows that all my work is wrong. Daniel replies, you're saying, why do we need Flamsted at all? And Newton says, I'm saying the that the fact that we do need him proves that God is making choices. Right? Now, the thing is, like observations, maybe there's anomalies, right? The data might be wrong. And... The fact that that could happen, or the fact that we don't know if the sun's coming up tomorrow, means God makes the sun come up every day. God's there in everything. It may follow certain rules that he can describe, but God's always there. That's his on God. He says, uh, I am not one of those who believes God made the world and walked away from it, that he has no further choices to make, no ongoing presence in the world. I believe he is everywhere making choices all the time. And Daniel's perspective is more like influenced by Leibniz. He's saying maybe there's something like something that's not God that's making this true, like vortices or monads, if you're Leibniz, you know, or ultimately, you know, so there's some force. There's and, and here's the problem, like for the natural philosophers of the time is, yeah, God could could, of course, intervene as a miracle and make, you know, the moon always affected by the sun or the earth, right? Or the earth always affected by the sun. It's a gravity, right? But action at a distance, how do you, how does it, how come it's instantaneous or over a distance? Nothing else works that way. So the question of what is the force? What's actually the force between them? I just wants it to be something. And Newton just says it's God. I think that's, I understand. That's not how I understand it. Maybe I maybe I'm totally wrong here. But anyways, we flip back to Eliza. And now she's back up in Amsterdam. She's in the Schnevigen, which is a beach uh, near Amsterdam. And she's meeting with uh, William of Orange. And Eliza's kind of talking about she has this really wonderful metaphor about uh, the bee, the, the like the the sand on the beaches being created by the waves and how waves in India come eventually to Amsterdam and create this and how it's like a 
wonderful achievement of work and labor over hundreds of years, like a palace. William of Orange is kind of bored with this conversation. And she even talks about slavery a little bit, and he's also sort of indifferent to this. Um, but anyways, he wants to know, he's basically get debriefing her on the DeVoe mission and the, the Versailles mission. And this is where he gives her, her his lecture saying, the reports that you're sending to me, you know, what the king wants you to put in there, what DeVoe wants you to put in there might be for anyone in the chain of reading these, these letters. Right? So everyone's in on it. And basically he's warning her a little bit that it's, you know, it's kind of dangerous for you too, but you're never going to actually know who anything is, is designed for because everything, just like in Versailles, how everything is public, who's banging, who's public, uh, who's wearing what, who was invited to what party. It's all public, but so are all these letters that are presumably secret correspondences held by ciphers. Now the Leibniz ones, you know, they're, they got a special cipher that aren't so easy to read, but they get broken too eventually. Anyways, who does she run into on this beach later on? But Bob. She's hanging out with Huygens, uh, by the way, the great uh, Dutch uh, scientist. But she meets Bob Shafto. And so we finally meet Bob Shafto. We, we saw him before he was a kid, and we had stories about him. But we finally meet Bob Shafto. And Eliza first thinks it's Jack. And so we got some nice character stuff here with Eliza because... First, we get Bob telling his whole story, and we Bob's immediately a very different character from Jack. Bob's much more meticulous, very loyal, someone who really takes careful notes of things that are going on, much more attuned to politics, um, and all this. Now, he tells several stories. One is about the Monmouth Rebellion that he was involved in, the formation of this John Churchill's kind of military unit, uh, which is going to be like directly under the king. Now, the Monmouth Rebellion ended with the Bloody Assizes, right? So, quote, there was a series of trials started in Winchester uh, in August 1685 in the aftermath of the Battle of Sigmund, which ended the Monmouth Rebellion in, in England. About a thousand rebels were put on trial there. So the heads of these were Sir William Montague, Sir Robert Wright, Sir Cresswell Levens, Sir Henry Poxfen, and, and these characters, I don't think they, they might be mentioned, but they don't really show up in the story. But George Jeffries, who is a character, so I guess Stevenson sort of reduces this to um, Jeffries. Well, anyways, of these thousand prisoners, some 800 or so were deported to America. Hundreds were, at least 300 were hanged, drawn, or quartered. Including uh, Monmouth. So. That's that's here. Now another. Now he also tells a story. About how he meets this. This woman Abigail. Who becomes basically. Uh, Bob's. Uh, romantic interest. Love interest. But during the repression of the Monmouth rebellion. Uh, the Earl of Upnor. You know, bought all, you know, a lot of these people were captured and made slaves and just whole neighborhoods were just whole villages were like rounded up and, you know, people were enslaved. One of these was Abigail, who's been captured by uh, Louis Anglesey, the Earl of Upnor, right? Who we first met early on in the book when he was killing someone and, and Daniel saw it, right? 
And then Bob basically says, like, you have money, you know Jack, so you sort of are connected to me, you know, a bit of my story, and I'm begging you, use your money to free her. And I'll be your slave in, you know, in all but name. I'll be your, I'll, I'll be your servant. So Eliza's been forced to kind of serve all these other people, and Bob's saying, I will be your servant, whatever you need, I'll help you with. And he does eventually kind of aid her, he kind of you know, helps Daniel a little bit later on, too. Probably because Eliza wanted him to do it. But Eliza scolds him for this and says, okay, you don't really hate slavery. You just hate that Abigail is enslaved. I hate slavery. And you heard I don't like slavery from Jack. In fact, Bob talks about he ran into Jack when he was on his, when he left the ship to go on his expedition to on the slave trade before he was turned into a Barbary Corsair. Both assume Jack's dead at this point. And Bob, you know, is sufficiently scolded by this because it's true, basically, that he cares about Abigail and not slavery as a whole. And then Eliza takes her into the house of Huygens' house and where she's staying and bangs him. Um, she uses this, like, the sheep gut condoms. I think they showed up before in the story. Yeah, Tess was using them, right, when having sex with Daniel. I guess it was the condoms of the day. But she has sex with him. And she's kind of having sex with Jack, I think. But she's also sort of proving a point where Eliza basically tells Bob, like, you weren't very faithful to Abigail just now. How much, You know, you really aren't that honorable of a person. And I'm not going to necessarily help you. I'll remember you. I'll keep you in mind. And if you can help me end slavery or do something or, you know, I might be an ally. It's like a very s subtle alliance that they sort of establish. But she, does, she just says, I'm not going to just go and buy Abigail from from the Earl of Upnor for you. That's, that's not how we're going to fight slavery. And, you know, I guess there's a debate to be had there. Uh, many, I guess, wasn't Frederick Douglass accused by some abolitionists for buying his freedom, you know, buying his individual freedom? Same thing happened with William Wells Brown, who I talked about. His freedom was bought by, by allies, so he wouldn't be hounded and possibly put back into slavery. But do you, does that accept the system in a way, or does or to resist it, you don't buy a slave, right? They should be freed, you you know, without any compensation. But then you have the practical needs of individual slaves. Anyway, that's. Eliza might be a little bit too insistent because she doesn't do that much to end slavery until much later in the book. And she actually doesn't do that much throughout the whole book, I think. It's a little bit overwritten, this section of Eliza's character. I understand why she's... But she doesn't become like a prominent abolitionist or anything. She doesn't start any major abolitionist movements. She's on the margins of it. So why not help Bob Shaft a little bit? I don't know. I think she's too hard on him given what she's finally able to do to fight slavery. I mean, she ends up, she ends up with Etienne Dalkashan, who, whose father enslaved her. Anyways, ending this part of the book, we're going to close up soon, is, is Eliza talking with Huygens. And a lot of it's just kind of humorous, like Huygens walks in on them banging and he's kind of just wants to go back to work. Later on, he sort of scolds Eliza. It's like, next time you bring a guy in, like, wait till night or wait till I'm sleeping or something. Um, we get a nice, like, 
window into Huygens' house and all his like clocks and things like that. And Bob's kind of taken aback by all this science stuff. But it's a fun little aside with Huygens and Eliza. The key point being here, I guess, thematically, is Eliza is being connected to natural philosophers of various stripes uh, in across Europe. It's not going to just be Huygens. It's going to be Waterhouse even, who she sleeps with at some point. She's able to basically get into Daniel's head, um, which I guess will be important later on in the story too. At least in this book, it's a little important, but I think later on in the story, it, it comes up again. So I guess that's it. I think I'm going to stop here. We're about a third of the way through Odalisk. And I think you see my point that there's a lot going on in, the, in this book, even though it's, it's, it's not that long. It's really crammed in with a lot of stuff. Um, so the next episode will cover, I guess if you have a copy of this book, it would be 716 to 811 of it. Basically uh, covering Daniel's struggles with, uh, with uh, the more repressive aspects of James II's reign, his realization that he's going to be a political revolutionary. Um, and then we, we were introduced to Faccio, um, we get a little scene with William Penn, and then Eliza's scheming with uh, faking the fall of Batavia to try to crash VOC stock. So that's all coming up in the next episode. So anyways, uh, let me know what you think of Odalise. Do you share my kind of reservations about this particular book? I love the Baroque cycle overall, but this is the one volume I, I guess I struggle the most getting to, uh, getting through. Um, but that's all. Um, so send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I'll see you next time as we take deeper into Odalise.